So Acts chapter 16 tonight. We're going to continue in our series on the journey. Just looking at Paul's life from the time that he was Saul. Just being a persecutor, someone who attacked the church in any way he possibly could. Now we see he's a preacher, a leader in the church, and he's doing tremendous things. But we're learning lessons from his life. And just to be honest with you, we've looked at very important lessons like how we are to be ministers of the gospel, and I believe that's a very important one. But I believe that the lesson we're going to look at tonight could probably is probably the most important that you can glean from Paul's life. If you have not paid attention at all, which I don't blame you, I'm not saying that I have spent more time preparing this sermon. I'm not saying that uh, it is going to be a better sermon. I'm just saying the subject matter applies to every single person in this room. And I believe that if you will focus in on just the brief time we have, I rarely take you longer than 45 minutes. If you'll focus in on that, I promise you, you will be blessed. Acts chapter 16 tonight, we'll start reading in verse 19. Now we spoke briefly last week about the uh, woman who had a presence upon her. She was possessed with a spirit of divination, the Bible says, and Paul got annoyed by her following them around, trying to act like she was a part of their group. So he just cast that spirit out. Well, now we find repercussions because of that action that he took. Acts chapter 16, verse 19 says, And when her masters saw that the hope of their gains was gone. And honestly, more often than not in this world, most people are more worried about the dollar than any type of miracle that they could see. Uh, they don't want Jesus involved in their business if the name of Jesus could happen to affect their business. And so I'm thankful for Christian businesses that I go to. For instance, this bank down here, Star Bank, we went to it the other day. We had a staff meeting in it. They've got God all the way throughout it. They've got Jesus' name all the way throughout it. God is written in the floor uh, and, and the man told us, he said, I figured I asked the Lord to help me start the business so I'd keep him involved in it the whole time. And so I thought that was good. And I'm thankful for those type of businesses. But these men, however, were upset that Paul had affected their business in a negative manner. So the Bible says they caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace unto the rulers and brought them to the magistrates, saying, These men, being Jews do exceedingly trouble our city and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe, being Romans. And the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. When they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bands were loosed. The keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light, and sprang in, and came trembling, and fell down before Paul and Silas, and brought them out, and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord, and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, and washed their stripes, and was baptized, he and all his straightway. When we had brought them into the house, he set meat before them, and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we come to you tonight asking and 
pleading that you would be present tonight. Father, I pray that as we've opened your inspired word, that the message would be conveyed in a proper way. Lord, I pray that it would be delivered in a way that would be easy to listen to, easy to understand, but Lord, not easy on the soul. Father, I pray that it would be convicting. I pray that it would strike people. And I pray that you would encourage those that need encouragement. Lord, I pray tonight that this sermon would be quick and powerful, just like you promise your word is. And I pray that you would help me, although my inabilities are far greater than my abilities, Lord, I pray that you would just use me as I desire to be used. And I pray that you would do it in the name of your Son. Amen. Tonight I'm going to speak to you on this, the importance of your testimony in turmoil. It was last Tuesday night, uh, or last Thursday night, actually, JCA had their first basketball game. And I'm the basketball coach, and I joked the other night. We didn't have much talent, and I was just kidding with the guys, and I hope they understand that. I enjoy coaching them. It is quite a bit of time that the guys take out of their schedule, so it is a real commitment. And we are having a good time so far, but, you know, your first game reveals a lot about your team. We so I, I, I didn't know who our opponent was. I just knew the name as I looked at the schedule. I didn't remember any of the faces of the players that we had seen last year. I did not recall the school. I was not familiar with it at all. And so we had our first game, and I was working with the guys trying to get some last-minute instruction in before the other team got there, trying to give them this play and this play and this tip of advice so maybe it will help them in the game. And I remember somebody calling me and saying, Hey, Brother Andrew, the team that you're playing is at the front door. Would you like me to let them in? I said, Yes, that'll be fine. They opened the door. The very first person I saw walk through the door was six foot three inches tall. And just, I'm trying to be as gentle as I can say this, he looked like a bala. Okay, that's all I can say. And for those of you that don't know what a bala is, it's somebody who can ball. Somebody who's a baller. They can play basketball, man. And I'm looking at this guy. He's got the look, man. He's tall. He's kind of skinny. He's got the lean muscle tone. He looks like he can dunk over me. And so I'm thinking, okay, maybe it's a one-man band. The second person through the door looked like Joachim Noah, for those of you who are NBA fans. And he had just as much facial hair. I am not kidding you. He had his hair in some ponytail look. I'm not sure what that was about. But he had a, a goatee, and he was six foot five. Now, Matt, stand up for me. Matt is literally the tallest person on my basketball team. Matt, how tall are you? Yeah, in your dreams. <laughs> I'm just kidding, Matt. I'm just kidding. Sit down, Matt. So Matt, stretching with his hair spiked up, is six foot two inches, maybe standing on his tippy toes. But I was looking at this other team, and these guys looked athletic. As I watched them in pregame warm-ups, we had uh, both of those guys, the six foot three player, did not miss a shot in warm-ups. I am not kidding you. Mandy was like, oh, you know, she's like the eternal optimist when it comes to basketball and she was like oh they probably won't be able to shoot about three quarters of the way through their warm-up she looked at me and she goes they can shoot <laughs> uh the six foot five player it really doesn't matter if you're any good if you're six foot five you're a presence to be dealt with so he but he was a pretty talented basketball player he was already built like a man like somebody mixed up his birth certificate at birth and they actually handed them a three-year-old child instead of a three-hour-old child, and so it was very strange, but he was a big kid. They had another uh, point guard who had the same athletic build that the 6'3 guy did, but he was shorter, and all he did almost the whole uh, warm-up time was dribble, and he was just dribbling between the legs and crossing over and behind the back and, and shooting shots, fadeaways, and and I'm thinking, okay, so they've got three guys. As I watched the warm-up unfold, it became very apparent they had five pretty decent players, and they were very top-heavy, meaning their top three were quite good, and their bottom two filled out their roster okay. So I was worried. I, I, just to be honest with you, I, I don't 
go into many games saying we don't have a chance to win, and I definitely didn't go into that game saying we didn't have a chance to win, but I was concerned, we'll say it that way. So uh, we started the game, and, you know, I did my best to give my Disney Channel motivational speech before the game, you know, we will fight, we will fight, we will fight until we die. And they're like, no, we're not going to die. It's just a game. If death comes, we'll just run out the door. <laughs> but we're having a good time. We, we tip the ball off. And honestly, my guys played out of their minds. They were playing some good basketball, especially in that first half. They were moving the ball well. We made some great passes. The guys were fighting hard, which is all I ever asked for as a basketball coach. Work your tail off. And if you do that, I can't complain. And the guys were doing that. So I called the timeout about three minutes to go into the first quarter just to give my guys a break, kind of get an idea of what their conditioning level was. And uh, if, if I'm lying to you, uh, well, I'll just say I'm not lying to you. Three minutes into the game, I call this 30-second timeout, and my guys come to the bench, and they're every single one of them. <laughs> So I'm like, well, that's not good. And, uh, so th but they're playing great. So we play a half of basketball, and we go into halftime up. We're leading the game. I don't remember exactly how much we were leading, but I think it was something like four points or two points maybe. It was a close game, but the guys were playing good. And so I go into the third quarter, and I told the guys, you know, we've got to keep it up. I don't want you to play as good as you did in the first half. I expect you to play as good as you did in the first half. And so we go back out there, and it became quite apparent as we came out of halftime, we made a quick little run on them there at the beginning, and they changed their strategy. They changed their defense on us. And what they began to do began to work. And where we had built up this little cushion, I think we even got up into double digits at one point. I think it was like 10 points or 12 points. We were up. They were shrinking it bad. We got to a point where I called a timeout, and the guys came over and sat by me. I mean, they had made a run, and I think, I know they tied it up, but this was right before they tied it up. I think we were only two points up at this point. I looked at them guys, and I go, guys, look at the scoreboard. Their fans were cheering. Their guys came off the floor slapping hands. They were all happy about their progress they had made, saying, oh, we've got this in the bag. And I looked at my boys and I said, boys, look at the scoreboard. And every single one of them looked. I said, who's winning this game? They go, we are. I go, we're in control. You don't let their tempo, you don't let their flow, you don't let their noise make any difference as to who's winning this game because we're still in control. My boys went on and they ended up tying the game up, but it became very obvious that my boys played under control the last quarter of basketball. And while they made run after run after run, my guys never panicked. They never diverted from the strategy. They never started doing their own thing. They kept playing their team basketball. And at the end of the night, we won that game. You know why? Because we were consistent in the face of conflict. What happens as Christians is we're not. When turmoil comes, our testimony does not remain true. And we begin to look a little different than the Sunday morning Christian when things are falling down around us. I want to help you tonight, and if you'll pay attention, I want to give you three reasons why your testimony must remain true in the face of turmoil. First of all, tonight I want to look at this. Why do we need to remain uh, consistent in conflict? Because there are those that hear us. There are those that hear us. I want to draw your attention to verse 25. Verse 25 tells us who's in prison. The Bible says, And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God. Now, we read these names as if, without any um, context, we read them as if these are both seasoned men of God. We know the story of Paul, do we not? Paul, who uh, early in the book of Acts was the persecutor, but now we've been following him. And now 
Paul is becoming uh, less of a pupil and becoming a very strong mentor. He is becoming a pillar in the church. He is becoming a leader in the church. And he has emerged as someone who remains true in the face of conflict. Paul has become that person. But Silas is not yet that man. You see, we're only introduced to Silas just a few verses ago. This is his very first missionary trip to ever take. The first thing that he sees in the ministry is this woman with the spirit of divination. And now because of what Paul did, Silas finds himself in prison with Paul. You know why Paul needed to sing? Because Silas needed him to. Silas was green behind the ears. He was wet behind the ears. He was just a newbie. We need to sing. We need to remain consistent because of those who are with us. Some of you have been involved in faith and especially in this church for years and years and years. Some of you have been here for well on 20 years now. And those of you who haven't been here that long, we have many people here who have been serving faithfully in our church for 10 15, easily 20 years. And I'm thankful for you. But you know the reason that your testimony must remain consistent and true and faithful in the time of your adversity? Because we all face adversity, do we not? You know the reason why your testimony must remain tried and true when that time comes? Because there's newbies watching. There's people whose faith is not to the point that yours is. And I'm not putting you on a platform just because you've served on a bus route for 20 years. I'm just saying you've experienced God work in your life. You've seen what he can do. You've been faithful. You've stayed by the stuff. You have been there. But they have not. And so often it scares me how fickle we are as people who have been involved with faith and religion and Christ for so long, how one thing comes in our path and we just melt down. And we try putting on a good show and we try putting on a good facade that, oh, everything's fine, but anybody who sees your face and reads your eyes can tell you're melting. There's people who need to see strength in the face of trial. There's people that need to see that it is not a bad thing to go through trials, for it's in the trials that we most clearly have visitation with Christ. You understand, it was in the fire that the three Hebrew children met with God, not on the plain. You understand, it is when Daniel was in the lion's den that God shut the mouth of the lions. It's in our trial that God promises to be with us. And we can more clearly see him at that point than any other time in the Christian faith. But are we faithful when that time comes? Are we consistent? Because there are those who are with us that need to see that. Secondly, there are those who are near us. Look in verse 25 and 26. The Bible says, Silas pray, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God and the prisoners heard them. You know what I like about this? Is Paul and Silas sang, but it wasn't one of those, Lord, you are so good to me. Lord. I just think that Paul was obnoxious when he was singing this night. I don't know about you. Do y'all remember Brother Jimmy Maple? Do any of y'all remember? Brother Jimmy did not care who heard him. Brother Jimmy did not care that dogs were howling in Crowley when he was vacuuming. Brother Jimmy just sang, man. He would just, amazing grace. And that's literally as loud as he sang all the time. He was just obnoxious with it. I, I, I think that's the way Paul was. I think that's the way Silas was. Because why would the Bible inform us that, oh, be sure... The prisoners heard it. Because I don't think they were trying to hide their song. They weren't trying to hide the faith that had put them in that prison. They weren't trying to hide. They were willing to share that with others. The Bible instructs us as Christians that we are to have our conversation honest among the Gentiles. 
that whereas they speak evil uh, uh, against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Even though they, they ridicule you, and even though they talk bad about you and slander you, it is them who we are to remain faithful for, because our conversation is to remain good in front of the Gentiles. That one day they'll say, Oh, the God that you spoke about, the God you sung about, so obnoxiously at times, He's real. We're to have an honest conversation. Is your testimony remaining true for those who are near you? Not only do we need to have a consistent testimony because of those who hear us, secondly, because there are those who need help from us. Now, I draw your attention to verse 27. The Bible says, And the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep, and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. Now, I'm not going to uh, tell you why he was going to do that. I've drawn my own conclusion. I think that it was simply because he did not want to deal with the repercussions of his failure here. But the Bible teaches us that as he sees the doors open, his assumption is the prisoners have left. They vacated. And so what he does is he's going to take his own life. And Paul says, no, don't do that. No, don't do that. And Paul stops him. I don't want this to be too far of a stretch, but there are those in this world who think what they are currently doing in the life that they are currently living is good. They think that they're on a good path, an acceptable path, and yes, even a pleasurable path. But you know what they need? They need Christians to stand up in their lives and say, stop. You know why? Because we, through the eyes of faith and through the Word of God, understand that sin is only pleasurable for a season. And you will one day have to reap what you sow. And you will not be able to enjoy happiness like God can provide in sin. So you know what we as Christians ought to do? Tell them to stop. Tell them that the life they're living is not a happy one. They say, oh, I had a good time at the party Friday night. Yeah, but how did your kid behave when you got home? And you were angry towards him and even violent towards your child. See, they don't even understand. They think what they're doing is right. This man thought that the right thing to do at that current time was to take his own life. And Paul says, don't do that. That's unwise we ought to do is we ought to live a life that's so pleasing to our God that people look at us and see true happiness is found in a personal relationship with God and not living in sin in this world. I hope that we can do that. He needed to be stopped. Secondly, he needed to be saved. Verse 30. Paul says, don't take your life. Verse 29, then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now here's my question for you. Has there been a sermon preached yet? I haven't found one. I think the longest, farthest stretch you could make is that maybe this man heard them singing. Maybe his room was close to the uh, cell that they were in, or, or maybe he could hear it echoing through the halls, as I believe Paul was a pretty obnoxious singer, just the way I think. But maybe at best he heard them singing praises to God. But he has heard no sermon on the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. He has not heard anything about how he's a sinner and he needs to be saved. And yet the very first thing he says when he comes and approaches them is he says, Sirs, what must I do to have what you have? 
I personally think that we ought to live a life that preaches louder than any sermon that I could ever preach. The sermon that this guy read was Paul and Silas's praise and integrity. He understood that they could have escaped, but they had integrity to stay. And I hope that you understand, they did not preach any long sermon. They did not uh, uh, witness to him by any stretch. All they did was do what they should have done, and God used that to speak to this man's heart. Can I ask you a question? What does the sermon of your life tell others? I mean, does it proclaim that your Savior is powerful enough to change? Or does it, like many Christians' lives, scream, there's really no difference between me and the world? What's the sermon of your life proclaim? Because as these men dealt with This man dealt with Paul and Silas. It became quite clear he needed what they had. I don't don't believe lifestyle evangelism is the only type of evangelism, but I do believe it's a pretty effective one. I do believe if we can look like the Savior, we will draw people to the Savior. I believe that Jesus was so radically different that every head turned when he walked into town. And I believe that if you're radically different, people will take notice of you as well. I just don't see that happening. I see people who resemble the world far more than they do the Savior who saved them from the world. What does the sermon of your life proclaim? Because there is a lot of people in this world that need to be saved. And maybe they would never accept my invitation to come to Christ by me knocking on their door and handing them a piece of literature. But what they may see is your life as they work with you day in and day out. And they see the consistency of your testimony, even when you're faced with certain trials that are outlandish for anyone to handle. Maybe you lose a child. Maybe you're going through uh, uh, struggles at home. Maybe your, your, your wife gets diagnosed with cancer. Maybe you go through something that the world just doesn't even know how people handle. And they look at you and they say, wow, the stability you've showed in the face of this turmoil makes me want to know the person you find your strength in. He needed to be saved. I just wonder if the sermon of our life preaches stability and consistency. Thirdly, I want you to notice this. He needed to help his, I'm sorry, uh, he needed to help his sphere. He needed to help his sphere. I want you to notice in verse 32, the Bible says, And they spake unto him, and the word of the Lord, And to all that were in his house, and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized, he and all his straightway. And we had brought them into his house. He set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God, notice this, with all his house. Now there are certain denominations that take these type of verses completely out of context and say, oh, well, you see how a father believes in God, and obviously his family then would believe in God. That's not the case. Every man is responsible for their own salvation. That's why the Bible goes out of its way here to say, not only he believed in God, but all of his house believed in God as well. You see, this man not only needed to be saved, he needed his sphere of influence changed. I find it unique how when someone gets saved, they go minister to those they're nearest to. This is not the first time we see this acted out in the Bible. Luke chapter 8 is the maniac of Gadara. We all know him. He meets Christ on the beach, and and Christ looks at him, and he casts the, the thousands of demons out of the man into the swine feeding on the hillside. The swine run down and, and they're choked in the water. They, they uh, uh, drown in the water. And we find this man seated, clothed, and in his right mind at the feet of Christ. This man has had an impact with God. Jesus has changed his life. And he looks at Jesus and he says, I want to go with you. 
And Jesus says these words to him. He tells the man, Return to thine own house and show how great things God hath done unto thee. And he went his way and published throughout the whole city how great things Jesus had done unto him. And it came to pass that when Jesus was returned, the people gladly received him, for they were all awaiting for him. Now what's unique about that story is, as Jesus comes to town, they, the, the man has the demons cast out of him, they literally ask Jesus to leave. They come to Christ and they say, we don't know who you are, we don't know where you're from, even this man was a problem for us and you've taken care of that problem, but you scare us, leave. The Bible says that this man, this maniac, goes back to his home and is such an effective witness and minister for Christ that when the next time Christ comes, everybody receives Christ with open arms. The same group of people who cast Christ out of town is the same group of people who accepted him with open arms the next time. Jesus says, oh, you don't need to follow me to be a minister. Uh, You can go home and do that. Is the sphere of your influence, are they impacted by the consistency of your testimony? I mean, do they know what Christ is doing in your life each and every day? Do they know what he's done in the past? Do they know the faith that you have in him on what he's going to do in the future? Are you impacting your sphere of influence? Not only does the maniac of Gadara have this happen to him, the woman at the well. The Bible says in John chapter 4, the woman then left her water pot. This is after she's had a, a religious conversation with Jesus. And went her way into the city and saith to the men. Now I wonder why she went to the men. Well, the Bible teaches quite plainly she was accustomed to a lot of them. She was more familiar with the men than she was the ladies. The Bible says that when she had needed to tell somebody about Christ, you know where she went? The people she was familiar with. The Bible says she goes to the men and she says, Hey, you! Come see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came unto him. The woman at the well understood that she was not to be a minister on some foreign field until she effectively ministered in her home field. And that's one thing that I believe is such a shame on us Christians is we send our money to uh, uh, the, the islands abroad and the nations abroad, and yet we are such poor ministers of Christ locally. If we cannot impact our own sphere of influence, I, I, I just, I, I tremble to think at how ineffective the dollars we send are. If we don't believe that Christ is powerful enough to change our best friend or our uncle or our cousin or the people that we work with, if we don't have enough faith to believe that he will do something in their lives, how does the money I write on the check, how do me sending that affect some foreign field when I demonstrate that little bit of faith in God? I wonder why we're such poor ministers of our own sphere of influence. I want you to take your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. And I am so close to being done. And you say, no, no, that's crazy. No, I am. Mark chapter 1. We find a man who is very early in the ministry of Christ. Mark chapter 1, verse 43, the Bible says... And he straightly charged him. Oh, I'm sorry, we'll read it, verse 40. And there came a leper to him, beseeching him, and kneeling down to him, and saying unto him, If thou wilt, thou canst cleanse me clean. And Jesus, moved with compassion, put forth his hand and touched him, said, uh, saith unto him, I will be thou clean. And as soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy departed from him, and he was cleansed. Now this is not unlike normal miracles we see Christ perform. 
Christ cleanses lepers all throughout the land. But this is unique in the fact that in verse 43, and he, that's Jesus, straightly charged him and forthwith sent him away and saith unto him, See thou, say nothing to any man, but go thy way. Show thyself to the priest and offer thy cleansing those things which Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. And he went out and began to publish it much. Notice the next phrase. And to blaze abroad the matter, insomuch that Jesus could no more openly enter into the city, but was without in desert places. And this man's witness was so effective, the Bible says, and they came to him from every quarter. In other words, the city could not contain the sum of people that this man was effectively ministering to. You see, God made an impact on his life. And you say, well, he didn't obey Christ. Well, I would rather not obey Christ in this direction than the direction we choose to go. Because Christ said, go, and we choose not to. Christ just said, hey, can you hold off telling? And the guy said, I can't. I can't because what you've done is so good. And the Bible says he goes and begins to tell others about Christ. And the city was not large enough to contain the people that wanted to hear Christ. So they find themselves out on the outskirts of town listening to the man, Jesus Christ, because of the man, the leper. He impacted his sphere of influence. I hope that you understand. I don't want you to go door knocking until you've gone Uh, knocking at your neighbor's house. I don't want you to go door knocking. And I'll be honest with you, I I fell victim to this. You see, I come up here every Saturday. I come up here normally every Saturday. I'm knocking on doors and I'm, I'm visiting. I'm asking people about their salvation. And while we were living in the duplex, I remember coming home one night, seeing my neighbors in their, in their yard working. And I said, what a hypocrite. I'm telling people in Cleburne and I'm telling people in Joshua about the gospel and my own neighbor doesn't know about it. But the difference is I fixed it that night. You see, I went and I asked them. I went and I said, Lord, if I cannot be an effective minister in my own sphere of influence, how can I ever be an effective minister when I'm seeing a stranger behind a door? Are you an effective minister in your sphere of influence? I believe a lot of the times is it's because when people who are familiar with us see us talk about Christ, in the back of their mind they say, you sure turn him on and off when you want to. They look at us and they say, well, Monday you sure weren't acting like the Christian you're talking about you are now. And that is the reason we have to remain consistent. Our testimony must remain fast, dead, and true when we're faced with difficulty and struggle. I just believe that when people see you handle your problems like a Christian ought to, they'll look at you and say, you can give me any advice you want. Not only do we need to do it because there are those that hear us and there are those that need help from us, I believe this is the most important reason that we need to do it. Because of the one that we honor when we do. Because of the one that we honor when our testimony remains true. You say, who's that? Well, I want you to take a look early in our our Bible reading. Uh, I believe it would be verse, uh, let's say, oh, I'm, I'm still in Mark. Go back to Acts chapter 16. The Bible says in verse number 23, And when they had laid many stripes upon them, They cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely. I wonder, does that sound familiar to any other stories in the Bible? Someone being accused of something quite falsely, I might add, if you read the context of it. But they're accused and they're brought and they are scourged and beaten with a whip. Does that sound familiar? I want you to notice, first of all, the suffering we may endure. Not only does the Bible not promise the Christian life to be easy, it actually promises something quite on the contrary. It promises that those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. 
The Bible says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 22, And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. Earlier in the same chapter in Matthew chapter 10, verse 17, But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils, and they will scourge you in their synagogues. The Bible says, If the world hated me, know that it will hate you too. We are to conform to the sufferings of our Savior. We are to be just like Him in the fact that we do suffer with Him. Now, I would by no means paint a picture that American Christians deal with the same type of adversity that other Christians deal with. There are Christians around this world that literally have to walk to their church under the facade that they're doing it at an English-speaking class or, or they're going somewhere that has nothing to do with the Bible. So I'm not going to paint a picture that we serve. We, we deal with a lot of persecution, but persecution is present in America. A lady by the name of Kelly Shackelford is the founder of the Liberty Institute. And in reference to the rise of Christian persecution in America, she says this, It is dramatic. I have been doing these types of cases for almost 25 years now. I have never seen the levels of attacks like these and how quickly they are now proliferating. There are children being prohibited from writing Merry Christmas to the soldiers. Senior citizens being banned from praying over their meals in the senior center. The VA banning the mention of God in military funerals. Numerous attempts to have veteran memorials torn down if they have any religious symbols such as a cross. And I could go on and on. You see, Christian persecution, even here, is present. But if it wasn't, that would make the Bible a liar. We will suffer persecution. But know that as we do it, we are partaking in the sufferings of our Savior. We are... We ought to count it a joy to suffer for our Savior, for He counted it joy to suffer for us. We ought to think it a privilege to suffer just a little bit, because not only do we partake in the suffering, we partake in the similarity. A lot of people think that the suffering of Jesus happened on the cross, and I I believe a vast majority of it did, a, a large portion did anyway. But did you know that the suffering of Jesus happened the very moment he entered this earth? For as soon as Christ came to this earth, there was a man trying to kill him. The Bible says that the wise men came to Herod, and they talk about a king, and that's the reason they're there. And Herod, under the disguise of worship, says, Hey, when you find this king, can you let me know who he is and where he is? And the wise men being exactly what they were, wise, did not tell Herod that Christ was where he was. You know why? Because from the very moment Christ entered this earth, he was dealing with persecution. He was dealing with hatred. He was dealing with those who did not want his message out. Not only did Herod do it, the Pharisees tried to do it every city that Christ went to. Pharisees literally followed Christ from town to town and synagogue to synagogue trying to catch him in a lie, trying to catch him in a wording dispute. And they would challenge him and they'd challenge his theology and they'd challenge his intellect. And every time Christ showed him up, and I'm thankful he did, amen? But Pharisee after Pharisee failed to challenge our Savior, but he dealt with persecution. And finally, by the end of his life, People had made up so many falsities and so many lies that they literally sentenced and condemned an innocent man to death. And I'm not going to sit here tonight and tell you of the pain of the cross. You are quite familiar with that. But when Christ came into this world, he suffered, did he not? I believe he suffered that he was not in the fellowship that he had been with God like he had for eternity past. I believe he suffered that he had to be in the form of man's flesh. I believe he suffered every single day. The king of glory having a rock for a pillow. I believe he suffered. The Bible says this, Philippians chapter 1 verse 29, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer 
for his sake. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, Blessed are they which persecute, are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. When we deal with persecution, when we deal with suffering, you know what we are doing? We're honoring our Savior. We're saying, Lord, you've taken so much for me. It is my honor and privilege to deal with this for you. Acts chapter 5, verse 41. And they departed from the presence of the council, and I would kill for this heartbeat, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Rejoicing. See, what happens is we as Christians deal with problems and turmoil and controversy, and we think it's like God's trying to uh, hurt us or that something in this world is trying to bring us down. If we're dealing with persecution, it is nothing but to rejoice in that, that we are able to suffer persecution for our Savior, that we're able to identify with Him in suffering. You see, if we're so friendly with the world, they're going to act friendly towards us. But my Savior in this world stand at complete opposite ends of the spectrum. They're opponents, complete competitors. One here, one here. Christ's righteousness, the world's wickedness. You identify with one. Which one? When I was younger, I had a friend by the name of Eric. Me and Eric went to Six Flags together and and this was a long time ago, so this was before Batman, this was before Superman, this was before, uh, I've not even been out there in a long time. But the reason I know what rides it was before is because this was the debut of Mr. Freeze. Some of you think when you go out there that that ride needs to be painted, it needs to be torn down because it's old and outdated. That was my childhood, so please don't ask them to do that. But I remember one day when those rides are first opened, their lines are just exceedingly long. Even for a terrible ride like teapots, there will be a two-hour line just because it's new. And so uh, me and my friend Eric and his family were standing in line. And I remember my friend's dad said, Eric, you're riding Mr. Freeze because we'd been standing in line for nearly two hours and we were almost to the front. Eric began to cry. Dad, I don't want to ride it. It's scary. And the reason he said that is because as we were going through the line, right when you get to where Mr. Freeze docks and unloads, there's about 20 people in front of you in line and you can see the ride. And that ride goes zero to 60 miles per hour in less than four seconds. So it goes, you hear these air releases, it's like, and literally you shoot out of there like a, 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 a bullet. And so you see these people that are, that are so funny to watch if they've never rode it before, like some foreign exchange student comes over here, and they're all like, and then that ride starts and their head slams against the back of the seat. It's just wonderful to watch. You laugh. But so Eric and I are watching this go on. And I was really just standing by Eric for moral support because, to be honest with you, I was scared of the ride too. And my dad was cool. He wasn't even there. He wasn't like, hey, you're going to ride that ride. So, so dad was probably coon hunting or something. I should have been with you. But, but uh, I remember Eric literally busting out into tears. And then he just stopped saying words and just started making mouth sounds. But I looked at Eric, and I was a true friend. And I said, Eric, I'll ride it if you do. I will throw myself on the altar of selflessness for you. Maybe I didn't say it in those terms at that time. But I didn't want to ride that ride because I had never ridden any large roller coasters like that. And I had been stuck in the little teapot rides. That's pretty much as high as I'd gotten. But um, I, I'm looking at it, and we're literally not 
five or six people away from going on this ride. And I said, Eric, I'll ride it for you. He says, okay. So me and Eric get there. We, it's two seaters. You sit one person and then another person side by side. Me and Eric sit side by side. I brought my belt down and click. Well, at least, at least it clicked. That's reassuring. Because when it doesn't, you're in trouble. Mine clicks down. I look at Eric's, and his is not down yet. And Eric starts freaking out. I'm not going to ride it. I'm not going to ride it. I don't want to. I don't want to. And the Six Flags worker comes out and grabs Eric out of the ride and pulls him off. Because, you know, it was a brand new ride. They had to rifle through the, the, through the roller coasters. They didn't have time to mess with a screaming kid. So they pull Eric out of the ride. My belt has already clicked. And now I'm like, I don't want to ride either. I don't want to ride either. He's like, you're clicked in, kid. Too late. And I hear the air compressor start going. And I had learned its pattern by the people that were in line in front of me. I said, where'd our fourth air blow? Sure enough. And I'm crying the whole day. I want to ride it. I want to ride it. I get back to the dock, and Eric's standing over to the side, sniveling. <laughs> what are you crying about? I was the one that wrote it. <laughs> that has nothing to do with my sermon. Every head bowed, every <laughs> You see, that day, what I was trying to do is I was trying to be consistent for Eric. I was trying to wrap my arm around him and say, you know what, I'll do it for you. I'll help you out. And I was trying to portray this image of courage even though inside I was shaking like a small little boy because I was scared. But I couldn't let Eric know because I was trying to help him. How does our testimony look? When we are trembling on the inside. I'm not asking you to portray some image that you're not. I'm asking you to find stability in the rock. I'm asking you to so completely attach yourself to a stable God that when the waves of this world slap you around, you can say, I know the, the, the author of my salvation. I know the buckler. I know the shield. I know the rock. I am anchored to him. And though the world may bat me around, I can find stability in him. You know why? Because there's a whole lot of Eric's in religion and out of religion that are shivering and quivering right now. Scared to death. Don't know how they're going to handle their financial crisis. Don't know how they're going to work it out with their husband or how they're going to work it out with their wife. You know what we ought to do? Take it upon ourselves to be stable. And in the face of conflict, we find a little bit of consistency.